Really, we're all the same. Sure, some of us have more money, more skill, more brains, or more time than others. But you and I want the, want same, the same thing. thing. I want to make a difference. I want to make a difference. To have an impact, a huge impact, on my family, my community, my world. Now it's time to take that dream and turn it into reality. To use what we do have to accomplish, to accomplish something great. It's time to leave mediocre behind. It's time to leave mediocre behind. Because it doesn't matter how much you have. It's how you use it. The opportunity is before you. The opportunity is before you. But, But you, you have, have to take, to take the first, the first step. step. Hey, good morning. I just want to say thanks to all of you for how hard you fight to come to New Spring. I was just watching the traffic out there, and, and I saw what you guys were dealing with, and, and I know that the construction out there and then parking when you get in here, and so I just appreciate so much the fact that you guys are serious about, about being here. It means a lot to us, and that, you know, especially checking in kids, and thankfully that's something that we're working on because we're about to build a building that's going to double our kids' space, and there will be a whole new check-in place. Help is on the way, but I just want to thank you guys for what you go through to be here at New Spring, and we never take that lightly in leadership here. Also, too, I, before I get started with my talk, I just want to say something to New Springers. If you're part of our church family, this is just a really great time to make sure that you pray every day for New Spring, because we really feel the oppression or the opposition of our enemy, Satan. And I know that the moment I say that, I just freak some of you, because the idea of a real God is... is present with you, but the idea of a real enemy called Satan is like, I'm not sure I really believe in that. Maybe he's just sort of a personification of evil. But guys, Satan is a real guy. He's a real dude. He's an angel. In fact, Jesus made this comment. Jesus said, I saw him fall from heaven like lightning. So in, in effect, what Christ was saying is he's a, real, he's a real person. The only thing is, we're kind of messed up from culture. We sort of have this Amityville horror idea of Satan that he like makes voices go, you know, and blood come out of the walls and all that. He's a great deal more practical than that. He is an angel. And what he tries to do is he tries to mess with God's people when God's people are trying to take bold forward steps. And, and I've lived through this. In 24 years of pastoring, I've been through seasons where we were taking bold steps. And there's a particular feel to his opposition. It's not just the normal run-of-the-mill stuff going wrong kind of thing. There's a particular feel to it. There's an oppression. There's sort of a bullying effect to it. And so when Lance told you at the beginning of the service today that we've, you know, we came here last night and all, I mean, guess who would be behind the speakers not working, you know, in a place where a message is going to be communicated that's transformative. And uh, guys, I'm not, my talk is not about, about Satan today, but just remember this. Here's what you need to know about him. He is an enemy who rebelled, he was an angel who defected and rebelled against God, and he believes that this world belongs to him. When he got our first parents to screw up, from that moment on, he believes everything here belongs to him. And so here, you can imagine, I mean, we're, we're trying to uh, talk about reaching kids in, in our culture today with everything they have against them. We're trying to reach them with the good news of Jesus Christ, a transformative message, and he hates that because the way he feels, we're going into his sphere, we're going into his kingdom. By the way, anybody pay attention to what's going on in our culture today? Is there anybody else here who's noticed that all of a sudden wrong is right and right is wrong? Well, I guess who's behind that because he feels like this belongs to him. But our goal is to go into his kingdom and take the good news of Jesus and bring people out into liberty and life. That is what we're all about. And guys, I can tell you in 24 years, whether it was relocating out here and you know, making more space 
or the transition of 04 in which we just became a different kind of church or whether it's doubling our kids space we sort of feel that antagonism of the enemy i know i've certainly felt that the last week but you know the good news is we're just caught in the crossfire his real enemy is jesus he's messing with the king and he's going to catch hell for it so i just you know I just want to be real straight about that, but I want to ask you to pray because, you know, we're, what God is doing in New Spring is a very unusual thing. And we don't have conflict. We don't have political infighting here because we've got 3,500 people that are focused on the vision. We know what we're about. We know what God is doing here. This is a church that doesn't get wrapped up in peripherals. We, we stay on main course here. And so you can be sure that God is blessing, but we're going to get attacks. So let's pray, okay? Every day, let's just pray because he, Satan is a defeated foe. Well, my talk today is the fourth installment of U times two. And in case you're here for the first time, what this whole series is about is doubling our impact. Jesus told a story about two guys who actually doubled resources that were committed to them. That story infers that all of us could double our impact in life. That doesn't mean work twice as hard because a lot of us are working too hard as it is. But what he is talking about is that we could leverage the resources, the time, the energy, the money, the talent, the opportunities that we could leverage those things and actually double the impact that we're making in our world and i've already brought three talks about how we can double our impact today i want to go to the fourth and guys right out of the box if you're if you're from a traditional church and you're accustomed to hearing traditional sermons you're probably going to listen to today's talk and you're going to say that's not a sermon and i have to be honest with you i have never heard a minister bring a talk on today's topic and, and I'm sure that infers, obviously, that I've never brought a talk on today's topic. And I don't know why ministers don't talk about this because it's all over the Bible. Perhaps the reason why we, we don't talk about this is we figure that parents just tell their children these things or grandparents tell their grandchildren these things. Maybe we assume that we're all just naturally taught diligence because that's what I'm talking about today, diligence. And yet, when I look at America, and when I look at American Christianity, I'm thinking somebody forgot to have the talk with us. You know, somebody had the sex talk with us, but nobody has ever had the diligence talk. Because if you want to double your impact in life, if you want to be a serious player in life, whether you're talking about your marriage, parenting, your kids, doing what God has called you to do in the kingdom, if you want to do that, you have to be a person who does do diligence. The reason my title today is Due Diligence is, is that's about the only time the word diligence is used in our culture. Usually it's a business term. It's a term that's used in the corporate world. Due diligence is what companies have to do to protect idea people from themselves. For instance, if a company wants to make an acquisition, they want to buy another company, it looks like a good idea. They're going to be able to eliminate a competitor. They're going to be able to bring brighter people into their workforce. It just it looks like on paper it makes a lot of sense. But even though a CEO might say, yeah, let's do that today, the lawyers, and I know we have some lawyers at New Spring who do exactly this kind of thing, the lawyers are saying, hey, wait a minute, before we buy this company, we need to check out what their situation is. We need to do, and here's the first word, if you're taking notes today, here's the first thing that diligence means. The lawyers are going to say, we need to do some investigation. We need to see what the liabilities of this company are. We need to see if there are any problems in their management structure that may have left unfinished business we need to see what we're dealing with and there will be a time of investigation and we call that due diligence that word due is very important 
because what we're saying is we're saying, hey, this acquisition deserves some diligence, and we're not ready to go forward until we have given the deserved diligence to this question. Do think about that for a moment. If you if someone owes you if if you're due a paycheck, someone owes you a paycheck. If you have a bill that's due, you need to you need to step forward and pay that bill because the electric company feels like you owe it to them. And if you don't pay it to them, they'll turn your lights off. Okay, that's the idea of due. And in life, there are some situations that deserve diligence and investigation. In Proverbs 27, verse 23, Solomon says, be diligent, that's our word, be diligent to know the state of your flocks. Back in Bible days, people measured their wealth by how much land they had or how, many, how much livestock they had. And Solomon's saying this, listen, if you're in business, you know what's going on with your flocks. Guys, for all of us who are in any kind of endeavor in life, God is saying, hey, be diligent about it. Investigate. Know what's going on. If you're married, don't just let it happen. Know what's going on in your marriage. I, I, I could talk to so many men here today, and your wives are saying, go for it, Mark. Go for it. Because you know that your husband really doesn't know what's going on in his marriage. You want him to know. You want him to know. But he doesn't know. He hasn't investigated. There are parents here today who have no idea what's going on with their kids. They're just letting it happen. The kids are in his room. He's been fed. He's got clothes in his closet. School's tomorrow morning, you know, 7.30. That's all I need to know. No, 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 no. Do diligence. Investigate what's going on. In, there's a book in the Bible. If you haven't read it, I'd encourage you to read it. Especially, I don't know, we have a lot of leaders at New Spring. The book's called Nehemiah. All of us should read that who are leaders. The story of Nehemiah goes back many years ago in the Old Testament when God's people of Judah had disappointed God so much by their conduct that God finally allowed them to go into captivity. And when the captive power came in, the, the raiding power came in, they destroyed the city of Jerusalem. Nehemiah had been taken into captivity and he wound up working for the king of the foreign power. That was an unusual situation. But Nehemiah got favor with this king. This king really liked him. One day, Nehemiah had heard how bad things were back in Judah and how the city of Jerusalem, his beloved city, was lying in ruins. And when he went in to be serving the king that day, his, 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 his demeanor was really sad. And the king said, Nehemiah, what's the problem? And he told him. And he had so much favor with the king, the king said, listen, I'm going to let you have time off. I'm going to write documents that's going to grease the wheels and take you wherever you need to go. And you just have carte blanche, buddy. Just go back home and do whatever you need to do that's burdening you. That's a phenomenal thing. You can read all about that in Nehemiah chapter 1. It's what's in Nehemiah chapter 2 that every leader here, every parent here, every person who's, who's doing serious stuff in life, every student, all of us need to pay attention to. Nehemiah, when he got back to Judah, before he ever called together people to attempt to motivate them to do great things, the Bible says very quietly at night he got on his horse and he rode out and he explored the city to actually get in his own mind the conditions. He did do diligence. Before he ever took a step, he investigated. See, here's the thing. I'm an idea person. I'm an artist. I have to surround myself with people who know how to do due diligence, who investigate, who look at the fine print. I have a great friend who's a great trial lawyer, and he and I were talking this week, and he said this to me. He said, Mark, almost no one reads fine print. Only lawyers read fine print. But he said, fine print is what determines everything. How many of us have signed papers? We don't have any idea what we're signing. 
we just want to we just want the car right and they're putting papers in front of us i mean all kinds of fine print pages of fine print and the guy says sign here and initial here and we just sign right we want the house sign here we, we want to take this step just sign here and yet this great lawyer said to me he said what a shame because he said so much of your rights as a consumer are bound up in the fine print and what I look at, when I look at Americans today and American Christians, is so many of us are just rushing into stuff and we're not doing due diligence. We get into a relationship and we think, wow, this is wonderful, but we don't unpack the baggage. You know, warning flags fly, warning bells ring, and we're saying, yeah, well, but you know, she's hot, or he makes me laugh. Man. That's what's missing in our culture. If you want to double your impact, you have to do due diligence. Check the references. Investigate. If you're taking notes today, you might contemplate writing down this line. A life without investigation is a life of constant regret. Do you know anybody who's always doing this? When will I ever learn? Yeah, that's a good question to ask. But you know, so many people that's doing this, it's like, wow, I just met the wrong person. I got screwed around. I got, you know, and, and a lot of times the problem is you just didn't investigate. Okay? Investigation. That's, that's the first thing that diligence is. Number two, if you're taking notes, the second thing about diligence is diligence is little things. It's details. In Proverbs chapter 10, verse 4, Solomon says, He who has a slack hand becomes poor. What he's saying there is somebody who just doesn't really pay attention to details. You know, they're thinking, well, it's just little. It's little stuff. It doesn't mean much. I can let that go. You know, it's just little. Solomon's saying, you know what? That guy who doesn't pay attention to little things is going to have big problems someday. Woo, there are a ton of us here today who need to pay attention to that. I'm not a detail person. I just want people to get to the bottom line. Anybody, do I have any friends here today? Just, just get to the bottom line. I am married to a detail person. My wife, Mary Alice, has a background in banking and accounting. In the early years of our marriage, she worked for oil companies and banks, and she just really is fastidious when it comes to numbers and details. Back in the old days, before we balanced our, our, you know, our family accounting online and with the computer, you know, Mary Alice did it by hand. And I've seen her sit down with all of our papers and our checkbooks, and I've seen her start working at 9 o'clock at night, 10 o'clock at night, 11 o'clock. And I go in there and say, babe, is there a problem? She said, it just doesn't balance. And I say, well, how much are you off? Four cents. <laughs> now, that kind of thing just freaks me out. Four cents. Now, do you know what I would do at that point? Yeah, you know what I did. I'd go into the change cup, and I would get four pennies, and I would go put them down on the table, and I would say, there, you balance. And Mary Alice would, with her, it's not right until it's right. And I've given her a hard time about that through the years, but secretly, I guess it's not secret anymore because I wrote it in the journal here, but uh, <laughs> secretly I really admire that. I admire that because I can tell you what, that gal has kept me from more stupid stuff through the years because Mary Alice reads the fine print and she likes details. Little things, little things. Michelangelo, the great painter and sculptor, said it this way. He said, trifles make perfection, and perfection is no trifle. Or, let's move that to modern-day language. Michelangelo was saying, little things make perfection, but perfection is no little thing. What he is saying is, if you want to be a success in life, you've got to pay attention. You've got to give due 
diligence to the little things of life. Wow, you know how it rained Sunday night? Wasn't that something? I mean, I, I haven't seen rain like that since I lived in Houston 25, 26 years ago. You know, um, it not only rained a lot, it came fast. And Mary Alice and I were at my parents' house in Bel Air. And when we left about 9 o'clock, it was dark in that neighborhood, and we couldn't see where we were going. And all of a sudden, without even realizing it, we drove right into high water. And I've got water halfway up the door of my beloved Honda. Motors ruined, just devastating. And I'm sitting there just trying to process what has happened. I've never been in flood water before. I mean, the first question I had was, are we safe? Clearly, we weren't going to be driven away, but it was pretty scary. And while I was trying to figure out what to do, all of a sudden I looked and there was a guy standing at my window with water up to here. I could tell his, his clothing, his shoes and everything were soaked. And did I mention that we were in the middle of a driving thunderstorm? Rain was just coming down in torrents. Lightning was striking all around us. But this good Samaritan had jumped out of his car when he saw what happened, waded through deep water, came to my door, knocked on my door and said, hey, let me help you push your car out of the water. And I jumped out of my car, and he and I got together, and we were pushing my car out of the deep water. And I'm telling you guys, lightning was striking in our block. And I was scared. It was my car. I thought, you know, I, when, when we got it out, I thanked him profusely. I have no idea who he is because it was, it was storming so bad, he raced back to his car. I have no idea who he is, but I can tell you something about that guy. There's a guy who pays attention to the little things. He's a success because he pays attention to little things. Dr. Katrina Furlick has written a great book. She's a renowned neurosurgeon, brain surgeon. Her book is entitled Another Day in the Frontal Lobe, and she writes a story in her book that really speaks to me when it comes to watching the little things. She writes it on her first day of residency. She, her responsibility was just to, to capture information about patients, and her mentor was going to come in and do the actual treatment. Her mentor was a brilliant doctor. But anyway, she wound up walking in the room, and her first patient was a cerebral, young man with cerebral palsy. And he was sitting very thin, very frail young man sitting in a specialized wheelchair with his head cocked back. And she walked in, and she said, in her mind, efficiency was the important thing. She needed to get the information for her mentor. And she looked at this young man, and she thought to herself, I'm not going to get anything out of him. So instantly, she turned her back on the boy and began to ask the parents for information and started filling out all the, all the charts or whatever she was working with. A few moments later, her mentor walked in. There was no place to sit, so he just hopped up and sat on the examination table and listened to her and waited for her to finish her questions. And when she did, she said there was a sort of a pregnant pause, and finally the guy started talking. He looked at the boy who was in the wheelchair, and he asked him, he said, well, so when did you finish high school? Dr. Furlick said her mentor had noticed that the boy had on his frail finger a very large high school class ring. He had finished high school on time. <laughs> he had used a specialized computer. And I, I wrote this down because I wanted to read you her exact quote. She said, for the remainder of the visit, I sat in the room dunce-like. I've been there where Dr. Furlick's been. Just didn't pay attention to the little things. Hey, it's the little things that will make your marriage. Michelangelo was right. Little things make perfection, and perfection is no little thing. Guys, expensive dinners, 
And lavish gifts won't take the place or they won't offset unkind words. It's the little things. See, that's due diligence. You say, Mark, hey, man, I take care of the big stuff. Yeah, but if you don't take care of the big stuff, the little stuff will eat you up. I mean, I've got a saying that I say to my team all the time. I say, hey, I don't mind being eaten by a shark. I just don't want to be nibbled to death by minnows. It's the little things, the little things. Number three. Let's, go, let's review, make sure we've caught it. Number one, diligence is investigation. Number two, diligence is little things. Here's the third one, Diligent, diligence is repetition. In Proverbs 12, verse 24, the Bible says, diligent hands will rule. If you want to be a success in life, you will have to, this is what successful people do, you will need to learn what you need to know, and then you will have to practice indefatigably whatever it is that you do. One of the issues that I have with movies and, and fiction and television is that, you know, when you go to see a movie, it's like you get introduced to people fully formed. You know, here's this young gal that looks like a fashion model, but we're just told she's a high-powered attorney. We're just told this guy is a world-class spy. We're just told this guy is a super business person. You know, they just show up good-looking, and we're told that. And then the next thing you know, we go into their private lives. One of the concerns that I have for kids who go see movies and watch television is that they'll have the idea that that's just how it works. If you want to be a super highly effective person all you do is just have to look good and show up and we got a lot of people here who fit that i mean i don't think we have any high world-class spies here but you know we've got a lot of highly effective people here and what do we know about highly effective people they know what they need to know and they practice 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 guys i know my talk isn't sexy today i understand that I know my talk isn't, it isn't exciting, perhaps, but I will tell you this. If you want to be a success in life, know what you need to know and practice and practice and practice. There is an astounding power that practice has. I say that today because, you know, I, I've watched other movies where somebody's just taken off the street, and the next thing you know, they're just bluffing their way to greatness. There was a, a musical and a book and a movie in the 60s that was called How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying. And in this movie, this kid, he didn't know anything, but he just knew how to schmooze his way through promotion after promotion after promotion. How many of us know real life doesn't work that way? If you want to be a success, you have to practice indefatigably whatever it is that you do. Tiger Woods, without a doubt, is the world's greatest golfer. I love watching him play. He's in a different zone. One day, I was watching him give a live interview, and an interviewer asked him a question. I was watching it while it happened. The interviewer said, how do you become great at golf? Well, I'm a horrible golfer, so I thought, I'll just listen to Tiger, because maybe he's going to say the magic words that will help me. Here's what Tiger said. He said, if you want to be great at golf, you have to love practicing as much as you love playing the game. My favorite guitarist is Eric Clapton. I love his music. I mean, he's just such a fantastic guitarist. I mean, I listen to it when I'm, you know, I, I just love putting it on my iPod and sitting and listening to, to Clapton play. It's always right in the pocket. I mean, just, but Clapton grew up a kid in, in London, I mean, or England, rather, and, and he grew up, there were some questions about his parentage that weren't really clear, and when he found out what really went on and how he was parented or how he was birthed, he just threw him into a depression, and he just sort of withdrew from life. The only thing that gave him joy was playing his guitar. I was listening to a friend of his in an interview the other day talk about Clapton, and he said this about him. And, and when I heard it, I thought it was almost freakish. He said that Clapton would sit up in his room for a whole weekend working on a four-note phrase. 
Now, at first I thought that didn't make any sense, but then I got to thinking about the opening riff of Layla. Okay, that's seven notes. But could I ask you a question? Is there a more recognizable guitar phrase in the world? No. Why? Because the guy worked and practiced and practiced. I'll be the first one to tell you that your golf game is probably not that important. And as much as I enjoy guitar music, that's not what life is about. But guys, let me tell you what, if it works with guitar playing, if it works with golf, it's sure going to work with marriage. If you want to be a success, you have to practice and repeat and repeat and repeat successful behavior. There are people who want a great marriage, but they, don't, they just want it to just appear out of nowhere. They don't work at it. They don't practice the things. They don't repeat the behavior that makes for a successful marriage. There are people that always complain about their careers because they feel like they're always passed over and they don't get the attention that they get. But sometimes it's because those people don't do the due diligence and they don't continue practicing. Instead of working, they're surfing the Internet. If you want to be great at anything, you got to do due diligence. You have to practice. There's a power in practice that is always astounding. Let me give you an example that I lived through. I never typed until I was 35. I'm really old, and I lived in the age before computers, okay? I never, I never typed. Mary Alice got me through college. And thankfully, I mean, she was an awesome girlfriend, you can, you know, because she typed her research papers and then typed mine, and I'm so grateful for her. I never would have made it through college without Mary Alice. You know, what an angel to do that. But anyway, she got me all the way through. And here I am, I'm pastor of this great church. And uh, I'm still writing everything out by hand. All my sermons are written by hand. If I wrote correspondence, written by hand. If you got something typed, it came from a secretary. But in those days, computers were just starting to appear. And I would talk to our board, and I'd just kind of offhand, I'd tell them how busy I was. And the board members, a lot of them were, were saying, now, Mark, listen, you need to get a computer. We need to get you a computer, because if you got a computer, it would give you back hours of your week. And I would joke, and I would talk, sort of kind of put them down, and I'd say, oh, almost no one had a computer hardly back then. I said, it's just time-wasting, you know, I don't need that. And finally, we were in a board meeting one day, and, and they were kind of joking with me, and, and the guy said, hey, Mark, here's what we're going to do. We're going to buy a computer, and we're going to put it on your desk, and you don't ever have to use it if you don't want to, but you're going to have to look at it every morning. And they went out and bought the best Mac you can buy. And this is when, you know, a computer costs what a car would cost. And I'd walk in and look at that monitor, and it just made fun of me. I can still remember the day I just went out the parking lot, got in my car, and it was hard to find software back then, and drove to an office supply store who sold, that sold software, and I bought, I think the, type of, uh, the title of the program was Mavis Beacon, Beacon Teaches Typing. Anybody remember that? I bought that, went in and just installed it in my computer. Fifteen minutes later, I was just typing like a blue streak. No, you know better than that. A-S-D. I mean, home keys. I felt like a kindergartner. I couldn't, I mean, I can remember how happy I was when I looked and there was the word SAT, S-A-T, and I'm thinking, great, I've typed a word. But I kept on. In fact, that was the first thing I did every morning. Before I opened any correspondence or talked to any staff member, I had a session with Miss Mavis every morning. <laughs> you know what? It wasn't long after adding keys and adding keys. I got to the place where I could type. I mean, I'm a pretty fast typist. They have been for years. But here's the odd thing. Did you hear me a moment ago when I said that if you repeat behavior, it, there's a power that's hard to even understand? Because what happens is you become very good, and you don't even know how you became good. You just repeat it, repeat it, repeat it. And after a while, you just do things naturally because repetition has a power that is far beyond what we can imagine. 
God just wired us that way. For instance, if you came in here today with a, t with a typing keyboard and there were no letters on the keyboard and you would say, Mark, your life depends on being able to assign the correct letter to the correct key, I would say, just go ahead and shoot me. I don't have any idea. I mean, I still wonder why they didn't just make it A, B, C, D, E, F. Why they, you know, why they do it that way. But when I sit down on a keyboard, my hands go to the right keys. Do diligence is knowing what you need to know and practicing what is good behavior, what is good conduct, what is wise, because it will give you a power that will amaze you. Okay, let's go to the fourth thing here, and that is pay attention. Pay attention. Um, I was ADHD before it was cool. That's right. And if my parents told me once, they told me a million times, Mark, pay attention, pay attention. And I'm glad to know that Solomon was ADHD because this is the second time in 20 verses that we read, my son, pay attention. It's in verse 1, and it's also in verse 20. When you have to tell somebody twice in 20 verses to pay attention, you got ADHD. That's all the tests you need. Just write the prescription, all right? Pay attention. You know what? I'll pay money before I'll pay attention. I have a friend, he's just a wonderful guy with a great Christian organization, and he's one of those friends that, you know, he can tell me the honest truth, and he knows it's not going to offend me. So he, he calls me from time to time, and I was driving in my car, I was talking to him on the phone, and our conversation had gone about 10 minutes. And he said, Mark, can I be honest with you? I said, sure, sure. He said, well, I know that when I call you, I've got 45 seconds to state my business. He said, after that 45 seconds is over, you're going to be real sweet and kind to me, but I'm going to know I've lost you. And when he calls me now, he always asks me, is my 45 seconds up? I don't want to be that way, but I can be. And I, I've learned that it's easier for me to pay money. It's easier for me to pay a lot of things before I pay attention. But if I'm going to be a success, I've got to do due diligence. I have to pay attention. I have to pay attention to my marriage. I have to pay attention to what it is that I do. I have to pay attention to my future. I have to pay attention to what God is doing in my life. As a leader, I've developed four things that help me pay attention. And I'm, I'm not going to be able to flesh these out. Maybe someday I'll bring a whole talk on these four things. But if you want to look at four things that govern my decision-making process as a leader, I'm going to give them to you right now. This is what I've learned. This is what wise people have taught me. It's what's been tried and proven in my life. Here, I'll go through them pretty quickly. Number one, know the facts. Know the facts. I meet so many people who screw things up, and then they always say, well, I didn't know what I needed to know. Guys, if you're old enough to process information, you're responsible to know the facts. Know the facts. Know the facts. I have a lawyer friend who says facts are stubborn things, and he's right. Know the facts. Number two, embrace what's proven. I deal with many situations in which I have to manage ambiguity or, or manage the unknown. And here's what I always do when I deal with a situation where there's a whole lot of unknown. I always ask myself, what's been proven, what is generally proven in life so that I can know what I'm starting out with? Heads up, leaders, everybody who leads or manages, heads up. Read biographies. Read biographies of great people. You will learn so much about what is proven. You will find the same things over and over again. Proven, proven, proven. There's a reason why we say you don't have to reinvent the wheel. There's certain things in life that are proven. It's ridiculous to face a big decision and not know what other people have already learned. That's what the book of Proverbs teaches us. Number three, here's the big one. Agree with God. So much about what you need to know, God has written in his book. I have great friends on whom I rely for counsel. And without even realizing it, I've sort of ranked them depending upon how good their instincts are. 
I've got friends whose instincts are sterling. I mean, they just like, they're like, they dance on the right foot every time. They just got great instincts. Wow, they're up here. They're some of the first people I talk to. I've got other friends that I love very much whose instincts are wretched. They couldn't think their way out of a paper bag. I love them, but I don't ask them for advice. But guys, God is always right. He's never been wrong. Whatever God says always works. I mean, let me give you an example. God says to believers, don't marry someone who's not a believer because you're, you're not on the same page. I can't tell you how many believers through the years have said, but Mark, I know what I'm doing. No, you don't know what you're doing. Nobody flips God off and wins. Agree with God. I mean, I had some things I just had to agree with God about this week, and I thought, Lord, I don't feel like doing that, but you're right, and you're always right, and I'm wrong, and I'm just going to, like, get in line here, and I'm going to agree with you. And here's one. I see so few people doing this. Think two or three steps ahead. Oh, it's really big today to take that concept from, what was it, Hinduism? I'm in the moment. I'm in the moment. Well, great. I mean, if you're thinking about what you need to think about right now, but you know, it might be wise to think two or three steps ahead. I talk to people sometimes, they just blow up relationships because they're angry and they just like let loose on a good friend or let loose on a wife. And when I ask them, why would you do such a thing? They would say, well, Mark, it's because I'm just honest that way. No, it's not honest. It's stupid. I mean, the Bible says a fool utters everything that's in his head. I mean, frankly, if I said everything I thought in every situation, I wouldn't have any friends left, right? We calm down. We think it through. We think two steps ahead. We say, well, if I say this, what's this going to do to this relationship? If I walk in and tell my boss, take this job and shove it, I may not have a job tomorrow, and I need to pay bills. Wise people do due diligence, and they think two or three steps ahead. The last thing stay at it. I was talking to my 15-year-old. He's just a bright, bright kid. We were on our way to church for the service last night. I said, Stephen, I got to talk about diligence tonight, and I'm talking about various shades of diligence. When I say the word diligence, what does it mean to you? And the first thing out of Stephen's mouth was what I have number five on my list. He said, Dad, when somebody's diligent, they stay at it. He's right, you know. Boy, we start something new, we got a lot of energy built up, don't we? New marriage, whoo, it's going to be great. New job, ooh, can't wait to get there. Isn't it strange that we have the most energy sometimes for endeavors when we least need it? How about having energy for something after you've been at it for six months and things are not working real well? But that's where the battles won or lost, staying at it. In the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, Paul writes, Therefore, since God in his mercy has given us this new way, we never give up. We never give up. If you want to double your impact, you got to find what God called you to do and stay with it. When it's tough, you stay with it. When it hurts, you stay with it. When you don't see any progress, you stay with it. I mean, Edison tried thousands of things before he figured out the light bulb. Lincoln failed at just about everything he tried before he was elected president. I thought about Mother Teresa. Can you imagine how many times she felt like quitting, taking care of the lepers in Calcutta, and yet when her, when her life was over, she had 610 ministries in 123 countries. Staying at it. You guys see people like I do? 
This is one of the reasons why I'm bringing this talk today, because I know it's not my normal message. You ever see anybody like this? They like, they're like starting something new all the time, and they never get anywhere. It's like dating. And this guy's trying to find Miss Perfect. And at first, she's great, but then she has some issues. And, whoa, I'm checking out of that, and I'm dating somebody else. And then I'm checking out of that, and I'm dating somebody else. And the guy never gets anywhere because he never stays at it. I know people, it's that way with careers. They get a job. They're excited about it. Something doesn't go well. They don't like the boss. Well, they quit that job. And they're starting something else. And then that doesn't work out, and they're starting something else. I had a great blessing in my life. I had a marvelous example. My father pastored the same church for 49 and a half years. When he took the church, there were teenagers who were grandparents when he left. And I watched Dad pastor through tough times and good times. I watched him pastor through lean times and successful times. But he just stayed at it. And, you know, I'm in my 24th year, and I'm not even halfway to where he was. But I learned staying power. How many people today, and I don't want to get personal about this because I know I could get into a sensitive area, and I'm cautious about that. But how many people are there who ended a marriage sometime in the past, and they wish with everything, as they look back, they'd waited a little longer. How many parents have given up on a kid, and they look back and they wish they'd waited a little longer? That's due diligence. Diligence says, I owe life some carefulness. I owe my life some investigation. I owe my life to watch for the little things. I owe God to hang in there when it's difficult because staying power, diligence, makes a difference in so much of our lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the time that we've had today for our talk. May your Holy Spirit craft the message to speak to us specifically. Help me, Father, and help everyone who's gathered here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you pray with me, please, for just one more moment? Every weekend, we always talk about knowing Jesus and having a relationship with him because that is the most important thing in life. You know, you talk about diligent. You talk about staying. Nobody is more diligent than God. Diligence is a God thing. Do you, do you realize that God makes you an offer? And he says that if you will become part of his family, that there's nothing you could ever do to cause God to cast you out. Do we fail God? Oh my goodness, I couldn't be perfect for 30 minutes. And yet God says that if we will come into his family, if we will accept Christ, he will never kick us out. I'm not asking you to join a church. I'm not asking you to give money. I'm not asking you even to turn over a new leaf. What I'm asking is, have you ever accepted God's free gift of salvation? God offers you forgiveness of sin, eternal life, and heaven as a totally free gift. The basis of that gift is what Jesus did on the cross. God sent his son into the world, and he died on the cross to pay for your sin and my sin, all of our sin, past, present, future. Three days later, he walked out of the grave under his own power, and it, called, it, it opened the door for God to make you an offer, and me, and here's the offer. If you will invite Jesus Christ into your life, believe that he died for your sins, believe that he arose from the grave, Invite him into your life. God promises to give you all those gifts. There's a verse in the Bible that says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's why every weekend we close our service with a prayer so that if you've never invited him in, you can do it. 
I'm going to pray a prayer. These aren't magic words, but boy, they're sure words that call out to God. I'll pray it slowly so you can think about each line. And if you're ready to invite Jesus into your life, you're about to have the biggest moment of your life. You ready? Here we go. Dear Jesus, I know I've sinned against you, but I believe you died in my place. I receive you as my Savior and my King. Forgive me and make me God's child. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Say, Mark, I don't even know what hit me. I just prayed with you. You said the most important thing you've ever done. And, and I know it was quick. So I've prepared a gift for you. It won't cost you anything. It's free, totally free. Even if you never come back to New Spring, it's free. It's just some DVDs and cool stuff to help you know what it means to know Jesus. And if you prayed that prayer, I'd like to give this to you. In fact, if you want me to mail it to you, all you got to do is detach this card from your worship folder. Just print your name and address in there. Check the box that says you prayed to receive Christ. You can drop it in the offering bag in the boxes by the back doors or bottom of the stairs. And if you'll do that, I'll mail it to you this week. If you've got just a few extra moments, you can take it with you today. I'm going to point through those two middle doors. There's guest services and New Spring Store. You can bring your card back to either one of those locations. They won't ask you any questions or anything. Just bring the card back, say, I pray with Mark, and then they'll give this to you today, and you can take it with you. One more time, I want to say thanks for being here. I know it was a challenge to get here today and get checked in and everything if you have kids, but I appreciate so much you guys working with us while we're transitioning and making more space.